From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. A grand jury indicts Mesa County Clerk Tina Peters on charges connected to an election security breach last summer. We'll get an update on what's next for the case. Then, integrity and transparency are top of mind this election year. Elections are increasingly contested in mature democracies as a result of polarization. When things start to get polarized, it is something very much worth considering, is the independence of the organizations that organize elections. What can be learned from other countries to address voter distrust? And restoring trust in public health departments after two years of pandemic division. This is my job, and if I didn't do the things that I'm doing as a public health director, I would be negligent in my duties. I'm Mark Flynn, and I donated my car to CPR. It wouldn't go into first gear anymore, but it was running. The process was just as described, seamless, easy, and allowed me to make my first significant gift to Colorado Public Radio. Selling a car requires posting information, responding, haggling with would-be buyers. That sounded like a hassle to me. It was more important to me to make an investment in Colorado Public Radio. It's easy to donate your car. Just go to CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Nathan Heffel. When it comes to COVID-19, Coloradans finally have some room to breathe. Case numbers continue to fall, as do mask and vaccination mandates, but something else is also falling trust in public health agencies. But it's not just national public health agencies. Here in Colorado, Tri-County Health along the Front Range broke apart and other longtime local public health officials resigned as conflict over COVID-19 mandates grew. So how do those entrusted to keep the public safe regain the public's trust? Dr. James Hamblin is board certified in public health and has written extensively about COVID-19 for news outlets, including The Atlantic and The Washington Post. Dr. Hamblin, Jim, welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you for having me. During this pandemic, the CDC and the FDA had confusing and sometimes contradictory guidance. I'm thinking of the need for booster shots and the slow rollout of at-home testing. From a public health messaging perspective, Jim, what happened and, and what other things contributed to this growing lack of trust of public health officials by some Americans? Oh, that's a great question. Um, well, part of this is baked into the expectation of the system. You know, you're when you have an ongoing crisis, you act first based on what you know in the moment, and you expect that you will learn more, and then recommendations will change, and advice should change accordingly. And you know, there will be some critics who will, you know, give you a hard time for that. But that's that's what you want. You wouldn't want a system that didn't adapt as circumstances change. Um, and then part of it, you know, it, it's always complicated by the fact that um, our public health agencies are are tied up with political administrations that have makes made certain promises, um, many of which were, you know, too rosy um, about, about doing certain things. And it, it, there is, you know, it's impossible to completely separate uh, public health from politics. So sometimes there would be you know, promises like that you will, uh, you will not have to wear a mask after you get vaccinated. And then as some evidence starts to accrue to uh, suggest that might not be wise, um, changes are not made as swiftly as they would be had that promise not been made. 
Um, so, so was this yeah. confusion then in public health you know, baked into how the CDC and FDA normally talk to the public in a non-pandemic situation? That is to say, were things just moving too fast and the messaging took time to, to catch up? Well, I think at a CDC, at a federal level, you saw really two different approaches under the Trump and what we've seen so far from the Biden administrations, which is on, under Trump, there were, there were daily briefings, you know, a lot of, kind of just... Uh, <laughs> Uh, unsubstantiated claims, a lot of people contradicting themselves. People didn't, the public didn't quite know what to make of it, who who exactly to trust, what what was really going on. And then I think the Biden administration has gone very much the opposite direction and had, uh, you know, CDC has had very little uh, voice. Almost all the messages have come directly from the White House. They're sort of speaking with one voice, working very uh, unanimously, but that has meant that things have been slower and you've seen, uh, you know, seen less, uh, heard less from CDC director, from scientists themselves. And, um, you know, I, I think ideally there's, there's some middle ground where there can be um, more constant communication, more open uh, debate and dialogue. Not everything, you know, is a, a polished proposal. Um, and and the public can watch those debates play out and hopefully, you know, be engaged and heard along the way. I, I want to note that this week the White House released a 96-page document outlining how the U.S. deals with COVID-19 going forward. And there does seem to be a real opportunity for federal, federal public health to, to reset in a sense. But how do you get the American public to come along here? I mean, both those who feel restrictions are ending too quickly and those who are ready for restrictions to end because of what has come prior during the height of the pandemic. Yeah, well, there's a lot of uh, justified distrust right now. People have felt that they've you know, if, if not been overtly lied to, then they haven't gotten the full truth. And so there's skepticism there. And then there are political allegiances and a lot of people working to actively, uh, you know, politicize things that need not be. So it's a huge question as to how you dig out of that hole. Um, I <laughs> And I, I have a lot of ideas, but I think chiefly among them, you know, it comes down to communication um, and, and making sure that the scientists and public health officials can um, you know, talk about the data, talk about the recommendations, talk about the possible paths forward, you know, say, if we drop our mask mandate now, this is what we might expect. If you don't, then then this. And and then realize that the policy decisions ultimately are on uh, uh, politicians and that you don't need to, um, you know, bring the public health officials into politics unnecessarily. Um, they should be able to say, you know, I don't think it's wise to stop a mask mandate now and not lose their job. And So it's the uh, separation in a sense, right? So it's a yeah. separation in a sense, keeping public health, public health, and keeping, you know, politics, politics. But but let's be clear, science is meticulous and changes as new data emerges, as you said, but explain that to a wider audience, especially in a pandemic emergency, can become cloudy. So it does seem that politics need to be involved, at least somewhat, um, yeah. Does there need to be buy-in from politicians here? That is to say, rebuilding trust is something that the CDC and FDA and local health agencies just can't do on their own? Um, well, they need to be given the latitude to, to do so, to have independent mm. voices. Um, you know, you want a healthy degree of collaboration, but you don't want um, 
everything to be coming from one voice. So you want you want people to be able to say, oh, I really trust the CDC director, but I don't like the Biden administration's policies, <laughs> you know? So people can be on the same page, at least about the science, about the data, about the likelihood of future variants, about the efficacy of vaccines and medications, and all of that we can just agree upon. We don't need to get into conspiracy theories about, you know, the whole thing being a scam. And you can agree upon the basic facts, and then you can disagree about, you know, what sort of policies should be requirements versus elective things, at what level those should be rolled out, when they, when they should be rolled back. And, and there will always be and should be disagreement about that. People have different values. You know, to some people, it, it is worth a mask mandate if you can save one life. And to others, they will say no. And that those are really important debates to have. Jim, here in Colorado, an entire public health agency was disbanded because of political infighting. Tri-County Health for seven decades served Arapahoe, Douglas, and Adams counties. It will cease to be by the end of the year, replaced by county-specific public health agencies. Local public health leaders were threatened and many resigned. One example is Leanne Jalan, the executive director of San Juan Basin Public Health in southwest Colorado. She had people show up at her house to demonstrate. Some held threatening signs to the point that she was frightened for her safety. She said people were angry because of the business closings and other mandates. Listen to this. I don't love being in this pandemic any more than anybody else. I don't love wearing masks. I miss seeing my friends and family. I miss going over to people's houses. I miss hugging people. I miss eating at restaurants. But this is my job. And if I didn't do the things that I'm doing as a public health director, I would be negligent in my duties. And and other people complained to Jalan that the restrictions didn't go far enough. What happens when a public health leader is legitimately trying to use science to make decisions and gets threatened because of those decisions? Well, threatening an official uh, in that way is never appropriate. Debate and disagreement is uh, to be expected. There are always going to be people have different thresholds, different values for how aggressive they want their policies to be, how much they care about certain issues. And that's normal. People, some people, whenever a public health agency you know, issues a guideline, some people are going to say it's not strong enough and other people are going to say it's uh, too far. But the uh, degree of polarization and blaming specific officials like that is absolutely absurd. You have to recognize what the charge of that person is. It's to keep people safe. And they are, when they are doing so earnestly and in good faith, you know, the best you can say is I disagree with that. Uh, but I see why you're doing it. That that is that is your job. And I think there's a lot of sort of fantastical, magical thinking that if you just lift the restrictions, everything will be normal. And and that's not true. When you have people people getting sick, dying, uh, people not being able to get into hospitals, um, y- y- you know, there was no option where things would have the virus would just vanish and everything would be fine. So, so how do you how do you speak to the nine scientists? You know, the everyday American, when you need to get that important information across with ever changing data and scientific understanding, it's clear that misinformation flooded social media to fill the gap when scientific data just wasn't available or wasn't clear on COVID-19. And there's still so much scientists just don't know. Right, right. We we really need to better fund our CDC and public health agencies so that better better information is available right away and 
and then help uh, officials and agencies focus on constant communication at, at many different levels. So uh, not just an occasional uh, decree from CDC or a white paper from a bunch of scientists, but ongoing dialogue, people representative of the communities they're speaking to, people, uh, you know, uh, speaking at different levels of scientific literacy with people hearing from them you know these it should be much more of a town hall than a, a decree from an ivory tower that's what people need right now they really need to um you know similar to the uh, decline of trust in journalism need to know uh, a public health official you know be able to feel like they've been engaged and heard and and been taken seriously and then even if ultimately disagree on the final outcome what what a rule ends up being or a guideline ends up being it, you you see the process you trust it was done in good faith and you hope next time that it will go the way you liked but you see why it didn't yeah so it seems up and down public health officials all the way from your doctor in your in you know in the doctor's office talking to you about you know what's going on with the science yeah yeah i think um you know there are a, a lot of bad actors right now you know on social media, on mainstream media uh, that kind of try to politicize things, polarize things, paint all the scientists or all the experts in, in one way. And, and if you are, you know, for most people who don't know, don't have much experience with their local public health agency, um, you know, or kind of ostracized from the, the medical establishment, there is a lot of temptation to buy into it like there's this one big cabal of scientists and they all want you to wear masks and not have jobs and get vaccinated and and really there's a lot of nuanced check you know textured debate and disagreement among scientists and doctors and you know that's being misrepresented so so we really have to work harder to counter that to build that trust and knowing that people are going to continue to try to tear it down jim thanks so much for joining us appreciate your perspective Thank you so much for having me. Dr. James Hamlin, board certified in public health. He's also the author of the books, If Our Bodies Could Talk and Clean, The New Science of Skin. He joined me from New York. Still to come, rebuilding trust with elections. But first, an update on the case against Mesa County Kirk, Tina Peters, indicted on charges of an election security breach. Stay with us. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Maria Francesca Cabrini was only 30 when she founded a religious order in northern Italy, but what she really wanted to do was go overseas. Mother Cabrini came to America in 1909 to take care of Italian immigrants, first in New York and Chicago, then in Denver. She bought some land in Golden, cheap, because it did not have water. She reportedly touched a large red rock with her cane, told her religious sisters to dig, and the spring they uncovered continues to produce water today. Cabrini established 67 schools, hospitals, and orphanages. In 1946, she became the first Italian immigrant to be recognized as a saint, soon after named Universal Patron of Immigrants. Seventy years later, Colorado replaced Columbus Day with Cabrini Day, recognizing her kindness and compassion, the country's first paid state holiday to honor a woman. A Colorado postcard from CPR with support from Cobal Urban and Mountain Communities. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. The decision by Mesa County's clerk to allow someone from outside her office to copy sensitive election hard drives has landed her in significant legal trouble. 
Tina Peters turned herself in Wednesday on charges that range from official misconduct to identity theft. CPR's Benta Berklin has been following this case for months and joins me now. Hi, Benta. Hi. This story is complicated enough. I feel like we always have to start at the beginning. So quickly, tell us more about the security breach Peters is accused of. Yes, this has all been going on since last August when Colorado's Secretary of State first announced that her office was looking into a potential security breach that they learned had occurred during an annual system update to Mesa County's voting machines. The information from those voting machines, including passwords, were later shared with election conspiracy theorists online. And what's interesting about this case is that many of the underlying facts are not disputed. Clerk Peters has said she had every right to investigate what she believes was voter fraud in the 2020 election. So Peters now faces 10 total counts, including seven felony charges and three misdemeanors. These include attempting to influence a public servant, identity theft, official misconduct, violation of duty. And she's not the only one facing charges because of this. Her deputy clerk, Belinda Nisley, has also been arrested. What's her role in this? Yes, that's right. Her deputy is facing six charges. The indictment says the pair devised and executed a deceptive scheme, which was designed to influence public servants and breach security protocols. It also says they exceeded permissible access to voting equipment and set in motion the distribution of confidential information to people who weren't authorized to have that information. And both women turned themselves into the Mesa County Jail sometime Wednesday. Does the indictment for Peters and Nisley add anything new to our understanding of what is alleged to have happened? Uh, Yes. The indictment alleges that the, the two women committed identity theft against a local man, Gerald or Jerry Wood. He apparently testified that they met with him about backing up the Dominion voting machines and then created a security badge in his name. But then they held on to it and allegedly used it to give someone else access to the hard drives and the software update. And then again, this is in Gerald Wood's name. Has Peters responded to these claims? She hasn't addressed this claim about Wood, but she has responded to the charges. And Peters says they were politically motivated. Peters is running for Secretary of State against the incumbent Democrat Jenna Griswold. Peters also accused Mesa County's Republican District Attorney of targeting her. In a statement, Peters wrote, quote, Using legal muscle to indict political opponents during an election isn't a new strategy. But it's easier to execute when you have a district attorney who despises President Trump and any constitutional conservative like myself who continues to demand all election evidence be made available to the public. I I would say that this I was going to say that this investigation began before she was running for secretary of state. But Peters has long maintained for months that she had every right to look into potential election fraud. And she says she was simply responding to the concerns of her constituents. And we do need Mm. to add that audits and hand counts in Colorado and in other states have confirmed the accuracy of the results of the 2020 election. The investigation into Peters has been going on since last summer. How did it finally result in this indictment? 
That's right. There was a state and criminal investigation, and the district attorney in Mesa County convened the grand jury. When the DA, Dan Rubenstein, announced the charges, he did emphasize that the grand jury is made up of Mesa County citizens and that it's an impartial process. As you said, Peters is running for secretary of state. How does this arrest affect all that? She's in a Republican primary race for the nomination, and the head of the Colorado Republican Party, Christy Burton Brown, has urged Peters to suspend her campaign in light of the indictment. Brown said Peters should think about what's best for the Republican Party. And Brown says, look, the GOP needs to really focus on getting more conservatives elected across Colorado. Peters called that response a knee-jerk overreaction. And she said if every Republican suspended their campaign when, quote, the Democrat-controlled power structure accused them of something, then we would never have any real Republican candidates left running. Well, it sure sounds like she's staying in the race. Yes, yeah, that's it, it appears to be the case for now. All right. Thank you, Benta. Thanks. CPR's Benta Berklin with the criminal charges that have been brought against Mesa County, County Clerk Tina Peters for an alleged election security breach. Still ahead, what the U.S. can learn about election integrity and transparency from other countries. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. COVID transmission rates, cases, and hospitalizations have dropped. The state's emergency hospital staffing guidelines and many mask restrictions have been lifted. You kind of feel like there's hope for the future, like back to normal. But some are still cautious. I don't think it's over at all. It's nice that we're able to do things like this, but it's also incredibly important to stay really safe. How Coloradans feel about this new phase of the pandemic. Read the story and see pictures at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Nathan Heffel. Election Day isn't until November 8th, but the midterm election cycle, well, it's well underway here in Colorado. It comes at a time of heightened voter distrust and continued political division. We're going to get some insight into election integrity and what can be learned from other countries. Therese Pierce-Lanilla is the head of electoral processes at the International Institute of Democracy and Electoral Assistance, or IDEA. Tim Sisk is a professor of international studies at the University of Denver. And Siad Alahojic is the senior program manager at International IDEA. They're part of a panel discussion for the Corbell School of International Studies with the University of Denver. Therese, Tim, Siad, welcome to each of you. Thanks so much. It's such a delight to be here. Thank you, Nathan. Likewise. Therese, we're going to start with you. Right now, the U.S. is extremely polarized when it comes to trust and electoral systems. Have you seen similar polarization elsewhere, and and how has that played out? Oh, certainly. Uh, I've had the pleasure of working with elections uh, for 30 years now in some very complex places, um, post-Civil War, for example, very um, very deep-rooted conflicts that were emerging from, from war. My, my first uh, uh, postings were, were in Cambodia, organizing the elections there, um, or in Mozambique after the Civil War there. So I've certainly seen my share of, of polarized conflicts over the years. But there are a, just a whole range of methods that, that, that work to help build trust in electoral processes in those environments. But I'll just mention one for the moment, and I'm happy to go into more later. 
But one that really is important is this idea of fearless independence or independent election commissions. And that's something I'm noticing that um, Europe and the US are really lagging in. So about 60% of the world has independent election commissions. And where that number is not so high is in Europe and, and the United States. Um, Canada has and Mexico has both sides on your borders, but not the US. And that may not matter so much in uh, in times when, when elections are just run as part of you know, any public administration. But when things start to get polarized, it is something very much worth considering is the, is the independence of the organizations that, um, that organize elections. And the trend in Europe is certainly towards independence election commission. So Ireland is moving in that direction. They made that commitment at the um, Biden Democracy Summit. Sweden has moved in that direction. The UK has moved in that direction. So that is the direction that even the older democracies are moving in. So what do these independent election commissions look like? So what makes them independent, uh, there's a number of factors, but it's partly how you appoint or how you recruit your, your senior officials and, and all the way down. It is checks and balances. It doesn't mean that there can't be um, political party interests, but those are very carefully calibrated, for example, in, in, a, in a commission like a a multi-party commission that, that oversees or has insights into the elections. That's So that's usually separated from the actual running of the elections. But it's also in the funding. So funding can't be cut off if the, if the elect, election commission does something that the, um, that the incumbent government doesn't like. So funding channels are important. And also who they report to. So in Canada, for instance, the chief electoral officer reports to the whole of parliament, but not to any particular minister. So those are the types of things that you look at when you look at independence. But we usually, at International Idea Where I Work, we usually talk also about fearless independence. And that's the brave or courageous behavior that you display um, in order to ensure that the elections are a, a level playing field and very fair. And that takes a certain amount of courage. And that's why we also add the word fearless, um, fearless independence. When we're talking about U.S. elections, do you see that fearlessness waning? I mean, that's one question. But the other question I also have is, you know, we have elections, the big elections, you know, this year we have, you know, uh, the president's election coming up, you know, not too far from now. That seems like a massive buildup of a commission to be able to have an impact in, in the next election here in the U.S., Yes, that's it. This is something you don't introduce quickly, but it's a mindset to think about independence. And so each change that happens um, to, to have that mindset that that is the direction that that I think all democracies should 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 go in. But you wouldn't introduce it quickly. That would be a mistake. Um, but uh, you asked about courage and I've seen some yeah. extraordinary courage from your election officials really extraordinary courage. I mean, we're watching from abroad, um, but you're living in it in the middle. And um, the bravery is, is really quite something that, that has we've noticed globally is the bravery of U.S. election officials. And so that's also something that you can think about for the upcoming elections is how to protect those who are doing the courageous job on the ground of trying to organize, um, you know, fair and nonpartisan elections. So any kind of support that can be provided for them <laughs> to um, to help make sure they can do their job without fear. Could you give an, an example of, of, of something like that? 
Well, what we're noticing is a, a real onslaught of um, online um, violence, I would say, towards election officials. And we're seeing this um, globally. And you know the U.S., of course, bit better than I do. We work the, the U.S. has tended to be outside of the global conversation. So we tend to work with most election commissions and not the U.S. So this is very recent that we are engaging more with U.S. election people. But online aggression towards election officials, but also an incivility um, at polling places. And this has been noticed even in Canada, your very gentle neighbors to the north. But for the first time in the elections last year, the chief um, electoral officer noted um, incivility in the polling stations. And this was partly related to the pandemic. But um, when the mask requirements were there, there were incidences of polling of pulling masks off of polling station officials and so forth. And this is really unheard of. And even in Australia, where elections are very, very highly trusted with the pandemic, when some of the the processes went online, election officials were were harassed online uh, in a way that they have not seen before. So we're seeing this this rise of incivility um, in other places. And I know that you're experiencing this in the United States as well. Sayad, I want to bring you into this conversation. You have studied electoral conflict and violence around the world and helped with the development of International Ideas Electoral Risk Management Tool. Can you explain what that tool does? Thanks, Nathan. And uh, thanks. To, I think Therese has made a very good introduction in terms of, you know, saying that uh, for elections to, to, to run as they should, there needs to be legal and institutional arrangements put in place. That's when the where the hard work begins and, and the art and science of organizing elections kicks in. Now, the problem with elections in many countries around the world was that they were plagued by violence. And when we speak about electoral violence, we have this mental picture of transitional democracies somewhere in East Europe, Asia, Latin America, or Africa, where big demonstrations happen and uh, we see how people lose their lives and uh, we see destruction uh, and suffering because of elections. And this violence undermines people's trust in democratic institutions and processes. And and at the same time, there was a sense that in, in mature democracies, elections are business as usual. But since the last few years, as there was this unfortunate trend of democratic backsliding around the world, we started also looking more into electoral processes in mature democracies. And unfortunately, we do find that there is a a much of election-related violence. And there are probably two reasons for it. One is that, you know, elections are increasingly contested in in mature democracies as, as a result of polarization. And the second one is, as Therese was saying, there are these uh, new medias for violence. And Professor Sisk has defined electoral violence more than a decade ago as psychological and physical. And what social media has done, has created this platform for psychological violence going into new hemispheres. Now, when we looked back into troubled elections in, in the last 10 or 15 years, we did learn a lot from countries such as Mexico, India. I come from Bosnia and Herzegovina, which had its part of the conflict-plagued and violence-plagued elections. We started consolidating knowledge and have developed this electoral risk management tool. There are 
two, I would say, values of it. One is placing emphasis on a risk as a latent threat. So you rather deal with the likelihood that something bad can happen rather than dealing with stresses, shocks, and crises that elections which are conducted poorly can cause. And the second one is giving a practical instrument to these stakeholders so that they can learn about electoral risks, collect and analyze data, prevent and mitigate it. And for a number of years, we are working with the election management bodies around the world, collecting experiences, and we are in the continued learning process through which we enrich our knowledge. And I want to get back to something that we mentioned earlier about social media and technology contributing to election-related violence. What are you seeing, and are there red flags that are being raised because of what you're seeing on social media and technology when it comes to elections? Yeah, I think um, there is a a lot of red flags around uh, uh, social media. You know, just I think 10 years ago, social media has been perceived as a liberation technology, right? We recall during the period of of Arab revolution, how citizens use social media to to organize uh, um, protests and to stand up against the government, to share ideas, to, to call for democracy and so on. And I would say that researchers and practitioners around the world have been very excited and evangelical about the potential of social media for democratization. But then we have seen the ugly head of social media maybe a few years after, when actually there were a number of autocratic governments and even businesses who mastered use of social media for malicious interference in in the electoral processes. So on, on the one hand, there is this more and less benign potential of social media. So people can unintentionally use social media to spread uh, false messages around elections, to commit uh, psychological acts of psychological violence against political candidates, voters, election officials. But then there is even this more malig use of social media to undermine democratic and credible elections. And, you know, 10 years ago, when we first defined list of of electoral risk factors, and we looked into those risks which are process-related and risks which are related to context in which elections take place, social media was not not a risk factor. It was unethical media reporting was, was more of the factor. But now things have changed. It's, it seems like it's a shift you're saying from, you know, the media aspect, television, radio, broadcasting, et cetera, to now being online. That That is interesting that that's changed. And you said in such a short amount of time, 10 years. Yes. So from 10 years, we went from one extreme to, to another. Therese, I, I want to ask about money and how it plays an outsized role in campaigns and elections in the U.S. Uh, what does campaign funding look like in the rest of the world And is there anything the U.S. can learn from this, speaking about elections and and things like that? Oh, that's an an excellent question. And uh, there's certainly a robust discussion around the world on uh, norms around money and politics. And there's a variety of mechanisms that can be used. There's, of course, different societal tolerance for different types of donations, for example, foreign donations or corporate donations. And while that can go up and down, there are some things which are absolutely non-negotiable, and that is transparency and and accountability all the way through, is just knowing where the money's flowing, who it's flowing from, and who it's flowing to. 
Um, so there are codified standards on money and politics. And the US has been largely outside of that discussion as well. Um, that seems to be a bit of a trend that the U.S. has seen itself as something very special and not really linked into that global norm system. But I think now could be a time to rethink that. Well, I just think of all of the the dark money that that we hear going into campaigns and going into political ads that people see on television and hear on the radio during elections. Yes, and the online space is very, very important to to uh, start to look into. So. Um, I'll just give give an example is um, this idea of imprints, advertisements and so forth that go through online that they can have that kind of sponsored by in the same way that, you know, that that paper flyers and so forth always have. So so the technology around how to make money and politics more transparent is also moving into the, the online space. But speaking of the online space, can I give some good news that might be of interest um, to, to the U.S. audience as well? So in, in this um, kind of difficulty, as Asiad said, we're moving into this online space and elections very, very quickly, and it's been very destabilizing. Um, partly what you mentioned, Nathan, which was the, the money and politics angle, where money's flowing and the transparency of it, but also this um, a disinformation or um, people feeling very vulnerable to being attacked or trolled online. And some good practice from around the world. Um, the Netherlands is an example of where parties have come together to do codes of conduct around how they will conduct themselves on social media. And that is good practice that others are looking at now too. So to commit themselves voluntarily to how they will behave on social media. And the important thing about codes of conduct is not just that you're accountable to it, but also the discussions um, about what kind of what kind of a media environment that we want to have. And that's a good discussion to have between political actors before it happens. It, it helps to, to moderate how the behavior turns out. The other big trend is interagency cooperation. That is private, public, temporary ad hoc mechanisms to deal with issues that we have not seen before. So this is in the area of cybersecurity, for example, that security forces, election commissions, and private actors join forces in, in, you know, in special task forces around elections to just monitor the issues of cybersecurity and be able to activate their various networks. That's quite unique. That type of interagency cooperation didn't happen before. And during the pandemic, we saw that the same type of interagency cooperation, but with health officials. And I think as we move forward with various types of crises, whether it's it's the online space or whether it's um, uh, extreme weather emergencies, um, so it could be this, this idea of multiple actors working together to protect elections is one that we can take forward for the online space, but also in the in real life space. So it's less of staying in your own lane and, and doing your own thing and, and trusting somebody else will do it, but almost an all hands on deck approach if things are going in a certain direction. That is exactly right. Um, the, it's sometimes called the whole of society approach. But I think as much as I was um, saying the importance of election commissions, the types of problems that are out there, whether it's cybersecurity threats from, from foreign powers, or whether it is bushfires, or whether it's a pandemic, these are things that one agency cannot handle. And that is a trend that we're noticing. And so even those strong election commissions are opening themselves up to the sense that elections belong to all of us. And there's a dimension also where, where it's not just agencies, but also people uh, should be out there to protect their elections and be vigilant if electoral institutions are undermined. And I think we're seeing that as well, civil society playing a role in this space. Now let's hear from Tim Sisk, professor of international studies at the University of Denver. 
a lot of the stuff that we've been seeing nationally, internationally, we can also kind of funnel it down to local things. I'm thinking about school board elections that garner a lot of attention and scrutiny in the past few years, so much so that the Colorado General Assembly is considering a bill to limit the amount of money that can be donated to campaigns for school boards, things like that. What does this say about all levels of elections, including ones in the past were almost ignored? I can think, you know, 15 years ago, school board elections weren't as big of a deal as they are now. Yes, Nathan, that's right. And and uh, I think Siad mentioned this sort of broader trend we're seeing across the world of democratic erosion. And there's a lot of focus on national level erosion of politics and of forbearance in politics. In other words, you know, being willing to accept if the other side wins and to sort of live another day for another cycle of uh, competition in elections. But what has been maybe underestimated in this process is the erosion of local democracy as well. And when we have polarization at the top, as we've had, and we've had political leaders who provide, you know, justification for violence and even go so far as the January 6th commission just uh, just uh, uh, said just a couple of days ago, you know, to actually incite violence by your supporters, you know, to call them out, you know, giving what we would call an injunction for violence, then this happens at the local level. And the focus on protecting local level electoral processes, you know, is set aside by looking at the really high stakes national elections. But what I've seen around the world, and this is true in contexts like I'll say Philippines and South Africa, in both of these situations where we see political violence around electoral processes, there's sort of two factors. One is that we perceive that the the stakes are actually, for many people, uh, higher at the local level. These are the things that affect the, the issues, decisions that affect their children, their daily lives in a way that national elections can kind of seem removed. So you have a real intensity of engagement at the local level sometimes. And then the other factor we've seen at the local level is also a lot of conflict within political parties. So we look at a context like South Africa, and we see at the local level here we have often, you know, if you can be the nominee for the the so-called ruling party, uh, then you know, you're, you're in. And so a lot of the uh, concern happens within political parties where you have sharp divisions between those who are, you know, either they're fighting over resources and competition, over, you know, access to, you know, local contracting and, and other ways to make money, or you see this polarization replicated at the local level. So we often look you know, in terms of our uh, scholarly work, we look at, at as Sead mentioned, sort of these process factors, how how local elections happen uh, and who protects and safeguards those local elections, but also that the stakes in the context are, it can be much higher. So I think we really uh, have to start to take some of these broader principles that Therese and Sead have, have talked about, about protecting and safeguarding elections and really run those right down to the local level, as we've seen right here in Colorado. 
and I do want to push back on that a little bit in the sense that, you know, here in Garfield County, where I'm I'm at right now, uh, there are a lot of elections I think people may not even know exist. The assessor, the clerk and recorder, the surveyor, those are elected officials. And I do know in off election years, many people just either forget to vote or, or, or choose not to vote or say, I don't know who to vote for. And so they choose not to. Um, being as critical as you say these elections are, there does seem to be a disconnect between what people are hearing on the ground and, and what you're saying. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. And I think one of the points that really needs to be made, and, and perhaps what we've seen less of in the United States, that we do see a broader, really concerted efforts at public education to show you know, why these local elections matter why it's important to exercise your right to vote, and also why it's so important that local elections have the same sort of integrity that we would look for in a national election. Uh, What I've seen, at least in terms of the United States, is we, we go to our own support of democracy abroad, democracy building efforts, And we have more sort of toolkits and guidance on how to safeguard and protect elections that we've been shipping off to countries overseas as part of our development assistance. And it's really time to to turn some of those tools and some of those best practices like the political party dialogues that Therese has mentioned and turn those to a kind of local setting so that we have a kind of common understanding that you know, elections are our opportunity to exercise voice, but to do so in the context of an absence of violence. And so to me, I think of elections, and this is true at the local level and the, the national level, as sort of the ultimate conflict resolution instrument. I, I want to wrap on, on this question of uh, divisiveness and, and what we're seeing across the country and, and around the world. Um, Tim, Republican-led legislatures in states all over the country have been passing stringent voting laws that make it harder in many instances for people to vote. These measures were passed after so much doubt was cast on the results of the 2020 presidential election by the former president and members of the Republican Party. Do these measures in turn risk casting even more doubt from the opposite side. That is to say, Democrats might say the results are invalid because not enough people were were able or even allowed to vote or fear that partisan oversight might change the validity of an election. Well, absolutely, Nathan. I would go back to the, to the scholarly research on this. The most manipulable aspect of politics is elections. And, and the most manipulable aspect is, of course, uh, what we would call in the elections world, uh, boundary delimitation. Here in the United States, we call it redistricting. And uh, again, I think you're absolutely right. It sort of hollows out the core of trust in electoral processes if, you know, for sure that the districts have been manipulated in a way that uh, affects the ability, for example, of, of minority or non-dominant groups to be involved. One of the things that we've seen is that you've really got choices here as a society. You can have loyalty and trust in the system like an electoral process. Absent that trust, what we have is what we call exit, where people either don't vote or don't participate because the system is rigged, or they exit. In other words, they no longer have loyalty to the system and seek extra 
institutional ways to get their views across. And so I'm deeply worried about the redistricting process, and I think you're absolutely right. It sets us up to fail, not just in the next electoral cycle, but one of the things we look at in elections is that this is like a repeating game. It's not a one-off game. It's a game that happens every two years. And so, you know, if, you, if you're going to lose every time, why keep playing the game? And I think that that's the big concern around redistricting and some of the other voter restriction measures is that we'll have a huge swath of uh, our population that's totally disaffected uh, by the electoral process. And, and uh, that either leads to apathy or it leads to further polarization and tension. I worry very much it's going to lead to the latter. Therese Sayad, I, I want to wrap with you both here. Are there actionable things we can do here in Colorado, um, or let's say in you know, the United States as a whole, uh, to restore confidence in elections? I, I, I think we need to leave people with something that they can do or, or maybe ask their elected officials to do, because from what you're saying, it definitely seems to be a large situation with a, a, a lot of moving parts that can be worrisome to people. We talked about some things that are just not possible before these next elections, but there are some things that are. And I'm going to borrow the words of your former director of elections here in in Denver. And that's uh, one thing that is actionable now is this idea of radical transparency, that every aspect of the electoral process is visible, is clear, is trackable. And on that, I would also encourage um, those who are listening and so forth to engage in the elections um, as, as polling officials or if the opportunity allows, and I, and I hope this increases in the United States, but the ability to observe um, elections. Uh, so that that idea of, of transparency and being able to watch, because I think that can instill confidence. I would say that, you know, elections are human rights and, and they belong to people. They don't belong to government or to political parties. And that's why it is important for people to engage. And secondly, elections are not election day. Elections are, there is constantly always something done on elections and, and team and you and have just discussed that there is phase in which election law is being reviewed. There is a, a, a period in which decisions need to, make, to be made with respect to institutional arrangements. And, and it is always a time to, to, to engage. Thank you. Well, thank you to, to the three of you. I really appreciate this discussion. And it is, um, it's, it's eye-opening. I appreciate it. Thank you. Nathan, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you, Nathan. Thank you. It's a real pleasure being here. Sayad Alahojic is the Senior Program Manager at International Idea. Therese Pierslania is the Head of Electoral Processes at the International Institute of Democracy and Electoral Assistance, or IDEA. And Tim Sisk is a Professor of International Studies at DU. Thanks for joining us today, and thanks to the Colorado Matters team. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers, Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Nathan Heffel. With special thanks to Megan Verlee, this is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.
This is CPR News, 90.1 FM, KCFR Denver, 1490 AM, KCFC Boulder, 